morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, open up to Romans chapter 15. And if you need to use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that at page 893. We'll be looking at Romans 15, verses 14 to 22. And really, Romans 15, 14 marks the beginning of the end of the book of Romans. Um, the great magnum opus of Paul is wrapping up. He's given us 10 chapters of just straight doctrine from chapters 1 through chapter 11, and then concluded it with some application and real-life examples of that doctrine in chapters 12 through 15. And so really, you can look at the book of Romans in two large categories, uh, the exposition in chapters 1 through 11 and the exhortation in chapters 12 through 15. As Paul is starting to wrap up his letter, he gives some thought about the relationship that he and the, the Roman Christians actually have, and that's kind of where he goes. You look at that in verse 14, uh, he says this, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. I was talking in the first hour, that is a, a great description of a church, isn't it? I mean, just look at those three lines, those three phrases. Full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to instruct one another. In other words, here was a church, they had integrity, they had a good grasp of the gospel, and they had this pastoral skill enough to tease out the many implications of the message of salvation in each other's lives. If you want to know what church health looks like, you don't have to look any further than verse 14, right? Church health, friends, it's not necessarily about the size of the church, the popularity of the church, or even the influence of the church. It's about integrity, a grasp of the gospel, and a people seeking to apply both of those in their lives in a way that's practical and God-honoring and accountable. And so Paul is just um, thinking about these Christians, and what's amazing about his assessment about the Roman church is keep in mind Paul did not plant this church at Rome. Now, many of the letters that Paul has written, the epistles, were to churches that he planted, Philippians, Ephesians, for example. But when it came to the Roman church, I don't know if you recall from our very beginning study of this a year ago, Paul did not plant this church. We even made the point from a kind of professional perspective, and you know, you can look at Paul, that, that's what he was. He was a, an evangelist and church planner. That's what he did. To really have nothing to do with planting the church in the capital of the empire must have been kind of a hit to professional ego, right? But we don't get any sense of that from Paul. He was just delighted that the gospel had made its way to the, the center of the empire and now there was a thriving, flourishing church and he loved them. If you remember the sense of the, of the affection and the care and the desires he had for these believers. So keep your finger in chapter 15. Go with me to the very first chapter of Romans. All the way back when we started this study over a year ago. And just listen to Paul's affection for these people who, by and large, he didn't know them face to face. He didn't know these people personally. He writes this. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. That without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Verse 11. For I long to see you that I may, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Both yours and mine. And I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, 
in order that, we, that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Then in verse 14, and, and really throughout the remainder of the book up until this section, Paul launches into the gospel. What it is, what it means, how incredible, comprehensive it is, what hope it promises, the benefits it brings, and what difference it can and should make in our lives. And so he goes on about the gospel. So now, as he's beginning to wrap up the letter, his thoughts go to this church and their relationship. And you have to kind of wonder, and this is where sometimes when we study the Bible, we, we, we don't, we, the Bible is kind of like the highlight reel of what needs to be said. There's a lot of stuff in the background we don't know. As for example, why does Paul begin to conclude the letter as he does in verses 14 to 22? Part of the reason it might be is that as Paul's wrapping this up, he remembers, I said some pretty harsh things or things that could have been interpreted as harsh, particularly the last few chapters we looked at, and these guys don't know me that well. And part of what Paul may be reasoning is I might have to present a reason to them why they ought to believe the things I have said. So in other words, verses 14 and 22 kind of act as an apologetic. In other words, reasons that these Roman Christians should listen to Paul and believe his message. So in so doing, as Paul is answering this question for the Roman Christians, why should they believe in him, believe what he says, Paul is actually answering a broader question that we may have today. Why should anyone believe in the Christian message that Paul preaches at all? In other words, why is the gospel believable? Why is the gospel believable? So in Paul saying, hey, here's the gospel I presented to you, and you know, and imagine his mind thinking, but you probably don't, you don't know me that well, so, so, so here are some reasons you really ought to believe this gospel message I bring. And we get a sense of that in verse 15. We get a sense of this kind of internal dialogue in Paul's mind. He says in verse 15, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. So we get a sense that Paul is recognizing some of the things he wrote were pretty harsh or could be interpreted that way, and there's not a lot of relational equity here. I probably need to explain why they need to heed what I've said to them. And we get a sense of that at the very second part of verse 15. Because of the grace given me by God. So here's how verse 15 flows. But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. So the rest of this, verse 16 to 21 or 22, really functions as, well, what is the grace? Paul says, I wrote to you things. Some of them were, were pretty bold as by way of reminder because of the grace given to me. And then he explains his ministry to them. And what he explains to them in these several verses are three things. That the ministry that Paul had was, in fact, an ancient ministry. He didn't come up with something new. They are getting the real deal here in the message of the gospel. Secondly, that his ministry was an authentic ministry. And then third and finally, his ministry was, in fact, an ongoing ministry. And as Paul is doing these three, three things, he is showing these, these Christians that the message of the gospel is the message of the ages, that it's a transformative message and robust enough of a message for all peoples in all times, in all places. And as you'll see, as we're working through this, in, in every instance, Paul is linking his ministry to them, or his ministry in life, and this letter to them, with the historic acts of God throughout history. In other words, in verse 16, and we'll, we'll tease this out as we get to it, he is tying his ministry and, and showing that it's really a continuation of the very priestly ministry of the Old Testament um, 
priests in ancient Israel. Then in verse 19, he's saying that his ministry is as valid the ministry. It's being validated in the same way that God validated his works in, in the Exodus when he brought the people of God out of Egypt. And then third and finally, he quotes the, um, from the passage that Kyle just helped uh, prayed with us in Isaiah 52, the servant language in Isaiah 52. And Paul is linking all these to his ministry to them. Now, obviously, there's a lot here, and we're not going to be able to deal with every single item there, but I do want to talk about them enough to where you can see the connective thread in each of those, how Paul is establishing the truth of his ministry and the gospel that he brings to them. So let's look at them one at a time. As Paul's talking about, his ministry is, in fact, an actually ancient ministry. Uh, let me read verse 16 and 17. I'll just back up to verse 15. So, so Paul says, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. What is that grace? Here it is. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Notice with me, if you will, just in verse 16, five times Paul uses languages that is directly connected to the tabernacle and temple uh, system from the Old Testament. So, for example, that word there, minister, in the Greek, we get our modern word liturgy from that. that that's where it comes from. It means to, it's kind of the ritual of, of religious service. He uses the word minister. He uses the word priest. He uses the word offering, sacrifice, acceptable. All five of these terms were very common in the tabernacle and temple system. What Paul is doing intentionally, and they, they would have picked up on these terms, right? For us, they kind of wash over us. But keep in mind, um, temple sacrifice, these rituals were not only pretty common amongst the Jews in a much more different format than today, but in society in general. So they would have heard these words like minister, sacrifice, priest, offering, and they would have had a very different image. The image they would have come up, for example, when I say offering, you're probably thinking, well, there's a plate passing around and we put in checks, right? Completely different imagery for them. When they talked about offering, they were thinking about the animal sacrifices and those kinds of things. And so immediately as Paul talks about this, his original hearers are going back to the tabernacle or the temple services. And what Paul is basically saying is that his ministry of the gospel, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, is basically a continuation of the same ministry that the priests of ancient Israel were involved in. Now, so the question is, well, what exactly do priests do? Remember, priests, um, priests were kind of representations of God to humanity and of humanity to God. Priests were the mediators. They were the go-betweens between the two parties. And what Paul is saying is that his unique priestly service to Jesus Christ was to bring the Gentiles as an offering to God. Now, in Acts, if you're a note taker, write down Acts chapter 19 verse, excuse me, Acts chapter 9 verse 15, and this is exactly what Jesus said Paul is supposed to do. That he was to be a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles, to the kings, and to the nations. And Paul here is casting himself in the same role that was so common just 1,500 years earlier. And the offering, but here's what's interesting. The offering that Paul says he brings is the offering of the Gentiles themselves. 
Now to us, again, those kinds of phrases, not only when we hear offering, we see, have a different mental picture, uh, that, con- that phrase of the offering of the Gentiles to them would have just been mind-blowing. Because if you were a Gentile back then, um, even if you were what, what they called a, a God-fearing Gentile, in other words, they were a Gentile, but they had converted to Judaism, right? You were not allowed near the temple, you were always reminded that you are away on the outside. So, so you had maybe the court of the Gentiles that you could be a part of, but you were just a, a distance away from the altar. You couldn't see what was going on. You were constantly reminded by the, by the structure, by the formality, everything, that you were on the outside. And Paul says, no, 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 but now my priestly service to God is to bring an offering of the Gentiles. In other words, you're not just on the outside anymore. You guys are the very sacrifices. You are the very offering itself that I'm bringing to the Lord. And so they would have been just like, what in the world here? These offerings, these Gentiles being brought to God were made acceptable by faith, none other by the Holy Spirit himself. And so the offerings that had to go onto the altar, they had to be perfect. They had to be without blemish. And Paul is saying, you, because of your faith in Christ, are perfect without blemish. You're the offering that I now bring. But now, unlike the priests in in that time period where the the sacrifices and offerings ended with bloodshed and it's the, the, the death of the offering, Paul's offering says, he says, these are living sacrifices who now live a new life in Christ. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you're I'm sure you've read those sections in Leviticus, and they've got offerings for this, offerings for that, and it gets to be overwhelming. So let me break it down in two broad categories. In the Old Testament, the people of God brought two general kinds of offerings. Number one, what was called the sin and guilt offerings, and these were to seek forgiveness and to restore the 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 breach in the relationship. So you had the sin and guilt offering, but you also have what was called the burnt and thanksgiving offerings. And these were to show gratitude and a, and a service to the Lord. And so these were the two broad classifications of offerings, guilt and sin offerings, and then burnt thanksgiving offerings that re- rendered service. According to Hebrews 7.27, Jesus Christ, as the great high priest, made the ultimate and final offering for guilt and sin. As a matter of fact, the writer says, Jesus Christ, is, he says, priests are constantly giving their offerings, but Christ no longer has to give an offering because he provided the ultimate offering. And Paul is saying that through his ministry, he's bringing the lives of the Gentiles as an ongoing offering of thanksgiving and service to God. In essence, friends, what Paul is saying to these Roman Christians is that the gospel he brings to them, this is no new message. It's not a, a new thing that he just came up with. Rather, it's the same timeless message spoken of in the Exodus and Leviticus in those offerings that were going on taking place, which in some sense is the same message that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. The message of the gospel is a continuation of the very priestly work in Exodus and Leviticus. Now, I know this sounds very weird to our, our, our hearing here, but part of that message was that we don't get to just approach God any way we like. But there is an actual protocol, a, a way to go about things. Now, if you watch the coronation, any of you watch the coronation of the king? You, did anybody here? <laughs> I mean, I know we're Americans, but nobody? A couple of hands? Well, so, so 
Just in case the rest of you didn't know, there's a new monarch in England, right? England. Uh, King Charles III, is he the third? And so he was coronated this past weekend. And in their coronation, you better believe it is a huge to deal. There is a certain way to do everything, to removing your gloves, to the words you say. That's just the way it goes. In the same kind of way, there was a way that you didn't approach God the way you wanted to. You showed up in a certain way. God was holy and just and above us, and everything was set up to remind people that you only came God by the way he prescribed. And I know for us, not only as, as Americans, but even as, our, as evangelicals, we kind of tend to think, oh, Jesus is my Jewish boss. What's that bumper sticker? My boss is a Jewish carpenter kind of thing. I just kind of come to him whenever I want, whatever. And, you know, that is totally by God's grace we can do that. But when you think about who you're approaching, it's, it's, it's almost like we've we got to rethink how we approach God sometimes. A perfect example, I think it's Numbers chapter 11, when two priests, I guess they were lazy or not paying attention to the protocol, mixed the incest incorrectly and didn't care. They walked right into the presence of God, and God said, nope, that is not how I roll. You do not just come into my presence any way you like. You remember our study of the book of Esther? What Esther was afraid to go into the presence of the king because she said, hey, unless you get called into the king, you don't just walk into his presence. You get executed unless he extends his mercy by holding out his scepter. See, there's a whole way to approach monarchs, a whole way to approach those in authority, a whole way to approach God. And the whole of the, the temple system and sacrificial system was to remind people, no, you don't just come to God the way you want but yet, in his mercy and his grace, he provided a way. He provided a way. There was a way that you could approach him because of his mercy and grace to us. And what the priests were doing, now, now that's not all that the whole system was set up to remind us of about, but that was part of it. But it was also kind of a, they were stewards of the message that, that even the practice God had started back in the garden, Genesis chapter 3. And part of the message there is where, where there is the evil of rebellion and sin, there must be justice. There must be the righting of wrongs. God would not tolerate any less. Well, so wherever there's imperfection, God wanted it corrected. And it isn't because God's uptight. It's because God is holy. And so, and he wants... The world to be holy because that is what's good for our flourishing and our benefits. And so in the garden we see God acting as the first priest as he sacrifices the life of another so that he can cover the sin of Adam and Eve. And from that time forward through the priests who would sacrifice the life of another and bring that blood to cover the, the altar to cover the sins. And Paul was saying, I'm doing the same thing in preaching the gospel. As a matter of fact, Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a royal priesthood. You're doing the same thing in preaching the gospel, except you're not coming up with the blood of rams and goats and bulls. But we're talking about the blood of Jesus Christ, who was the ultimate sin offering, the ultimate guilt offering, which has been accepted by God. And friends, if you're not sure how that works, the resurrection, the reason the resurrection was so important was because Romans tells us that the, the penalty of sin is death, and Christ, as the perfect sacrifice, he went and died in our place. But because he was perfect and did not sin, sin had no claim over him. Death had no claim over him. So his resurrection was a vindication that he is perfect, and death has no claim over him. 
And so what Paul is saying here is that that offering, the offering for guilt and sin, that's already been taken care of. We no longer bring those offerings anymore. But the offerings we continue to bring are the offerings of thanksgiving and service as living sacrifices, not in some ritual temple service, but in daily changed lives. We are living sacrifices. And that's what Paul is saying. You remember, that's how he started this whole section of Romans, right? Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to what? Present yourselves as living sacrifices. You don't need the guilt and sin offerings anymore. That's been taken care of. But we're always bringing those offerings of thanksgiving and service to God. And, and this Christian faith, Paul is saying, in a sense, tying it back to the ministry of the priests that go back to the ministry in Genesis chapter 3, Christ, the Christian message is as old as human history itself. It looks different, obviously, but the connective tissue is Jesus Christ, which is why in verse 17, Paul says this, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Christ is the priest of all priests, representing God to man and man to God and representing those perfectly both which is why he has to be the God-man to represent both parties perfectly. But Paul's ministry wasn't just this ancient ministry. I mean, connection to the past is very important, but it's got to have relevance to the present if it's going to matter as well. And so does the gospel is the same way. And Paul's ministry, he says now, was authentic. And when I say authentic, I don't mean the way we, we tend to think of the word authentic. We, we th tend to think sincere, like I, I'm, I feel sincere about this. Authentic, authenticity simply means the real thing. And sincerity in its original meant the real thing, not a decoy, not a, not a fake. And so Paul says his ministry was authentic as well. Look at verse 18 and 19. Paul writes this, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at those two verses, friends, basically as the summary of Paul's life after his conversion to Christ in Acts chapter 9. Basically, in those two verses, he sums up what his life was like Particularly those roughly 10 years that's described in Acts 15 to 20, where Paul's like nonstop, globe-trotting, church-planning, gospel-preaching, his devotion to Christ is unparalleled. You read Acts chapter 15 to 20, and it's just, you know, five, six chapters, but it roughly encompasses 10 years of Paul's life. And Paul says, my ministry is authentic in four distinct ways. Number one, he says, his ministry, Paul's ministry, led to obedience. Notice the phrase, to bring the Gentiles to obedience in verse 18. Friends, true Christianity, the gospel, is not about making you feel good about Jesus, right? Nor is it about making you feel good because of Jesus. It's about a transformed life through Jesus, and that's a very important distinction. It's not just a, a cute turn of phrase, but it's really important. The gospel is not about making us feel good about Jesus. It's not making us feel good because of Jesus. It's making us be transformed through Jesus. In other words, obedience, a changed life. That's what matters. And this is not just what Paul taught, but this is what Jesus taught as well. Look at what he says in John 14, 15. It's a classic if-then statement. 
If you love me, then what? You will keep my commandments. So, so Jesus makes a very classic logical argument here. If this, then this. And if you love me, you keep my commandments. Here's something interesting he says in John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. So there's a category similar in James' letter. James con- constantly says, don't just be hearers of the word, but doers also. Here's something that's similar. There's a category for people who have the commandments of Jesus, but they're, completely, it's, but they're not the ones keeping it, right? So he says, if you have my commandments and you keep them, he it is who loves me. So it's kind of the same thing in what he said earlier. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Here's something I just got to point out. These, these passages are so rich, but I just have to point this out. There can be a tendency in Christianity to think the key to knowing more about Jesus is just to go to church more or go to more Bible studies or read more, right? And a lot of people think that, which is why a lot of good Christians, they, they go to Bible studies, and they go to church, and they're trying to read more all the time. But that's not what Jesus says here. Now, to be clear, studying the Word, being in fellowship, all that's good. you got to know some things here. But don't miss the point I think Jesus is making here. How do we know more about Jesus according to what he just says in John 14 on the, on the verse behind me? Especially that last phrase. Notice what he says. Well, actually, we have to say it in the whole context. The person who has his commandments and keeps them, not only is that evidence that you love Jesus, but the Father loves you. But notice that last phrase, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. How you know more about Jesus is not through more information, friends. It's obedience. And that's something I think people often misunderstand. Jesus is saying, look, the way I will manifest myself to you, it's not because you studied more. Although that can be helpful. But what he's saying is, when you obey me, that's how you know me more. And look at this last thing Jesus says. If, If that's not blowing your mind here, look what he says here in John 15. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And notice this next phrase. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus is not asking of us something he does not do himself. Show obedience to the Father. And so Paul is saying his ministry is authentic because it didn't just lead to changes of opinions or perspectives on Christianity. It led to changed lives, the obedience of the Gentiles. The evidence was seen in changed lives. Secondly, Paul says that his ministry is authentic because he was consistent. Look at verse 18. In word and deed. This is very similar to what Paul said to his protege uh, in 1 Timothy 4.17. He said, Timothy, watch your doctrine and your life. Friends, people will learn about Jesus from what you say, but probably learn more about him from what you do. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Paul was very concerned and very aware of how he was living before other people. Not because he was fake, but exactly the opposite. Because he recognized the power of indwelling sin and his own propensity to not live up to the gospel. Remember Romans chapter 7? That that whole chapter was about Paul's struggle. And so Paul made it a point that he was always watching how he lived before others constantly because he knew that the way he lived and what he said communicated very loudly. 
Friends, when it comes to um, authenticity, I think there's a confusion in our society. Authenticity is one of those words that are buzzing around everywhere, and people say they want to be um, true to themselves. They got to be true to their feelings. They, they confuse authenticity as being true with their feelings. That is not what authenticity is. Authenticity is being true to your beliefs. And the reason I express it that way is that, and you know this very well, feelings can come and go. I mean, depending on how, how you digest that burrito or how much sleep you got, your feelings could change. To live authentically is to make sure that the, the beliefs you have and the words that come from your mouth, they align so that what you profess and what you practice are one and the same. Even if you don't feel like it, and maybe especially when you don't feel that way, you make sure that they align. Because truth matters, and that's what authenticity is all about, being true. But it's not about being true to yourself, it's about being true to truth. It's a very important distinction. There's a phrase that happens a lot, and, and, and I, I don't want to hear Christians be saying it because it's crazy. This is my truth. You ever heard people say, this is my truth? The problem with that saying, there's a, lot prob- there's a lot of problems with that expression, but truth is not something that you shape, to, you don't, uh, how do I put it? I, I don't want to sound pejorative, but truth is not something you manipulate. Truth is something you submit to, right? So you can't say this is my truth because you're, then you're relegating truth to a perspective, and perspectives can be subjective, but that's not how truth works. Notice how nobody says, well, this is my science, right? This is my science. And here's what's going on, friends. This is the age-old problem in our culture. Nobody would say, well, I'm just preaching my science because in our society, we believe science is a matter of fact and we believe truth is a matter of values. And we only see facts as objective and values are not. And that's why people can get away with silly expressions like, well, that's my truth. And no one would say, well, that's my science, because we've made a, a horrible mistake in dislodging facts and values of this or they're completely different things. I'm getting far afield here. But um, the point that Paul is saying is my ministry is authentic because I was consistent. I was authentic. I lived what I said I was going to do. And it led to the changed lives. Thirdly, uh, Paul's ministry is authentic because it was validated by God himself. Now, how do we know that? Notice the expression there in verse, I think it's verse 19. Paul says, by the power of signs and wonders. Believe it or not, that expression and those words, signs and wonders, and then individually signs and then wonders, that was confusing. So whenever you read signs and wonders or signs or wonders, those are technical terms in the New Testament. What do I mean by a technical term? You ever heard someone say, um, oh, go Xerox this, right? Or give me a Kleenex, right? You know what they mean. You don't walk around the office going, oh, there's a photocopier, but I need a Xerox machine. I can't copy. I don't have a Xerox. You, know, you, you just know when people say, here's a Xerox. Xerox this, they mean photocopy. When you ask for a Kleenex, you just give people a tissue. But Kleenex and Xerox are technical terms that refer to a particular brand, but you understand the point of the meaning. So when we read signs and wonders, that's a technical phrase that's referring to God's great act of deliverance in the book of Exodus. And the reason I bring that up is, and depending on which circles of Christianity you, you traffic in, people talk about they, they work signs and wonders as evidence that they are being used of God. Okay, but the problem is signs and wonders mean something specific. Let's go to the Bible to prove that. Here we are in Exodus. Exodus chapter 7. But I will heart, God is speaking, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though, I, and though I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. 
a few chapters later in Exodus 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these things, all these wonders before Pharaoh. Here we are in Deuteronomy. Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself, for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and then Deuteronomy 6. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. What I'm getting at is that the phrase and these words, signs and wonders, are in direct reference to God's hand coming into history and delivering his people from their bondage in Egypt and bringing them into the promised land. The only other time that these phrase, signs and wonders, happens in the Bible is in two other instances other than in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is in during the prophetic, uh, prophetic era of Isaiah and Jeremiah and in Jesus. And in both instances, all three instances, it is when God's directly intervening into the his history of man and working a great act of deliverance on behalf of his people. They're not willy-nilly terms that just talk about neat tricks that happen. The reason I bring this up is that in signs and wonders in both New Testament, Old Testament and New Testament, it refers to God's decisive act in history to bring deliverance. The first time it happened was in the Exodus. And then we see it happening in the life of Jesus Christ. If you read the Gospels, it's always talking about signs and wonders. God is saying, I'm entering history again, and I'm working an act of deliverance, just like I did in the Exodus. I'm doing now through my son. But this time, you're not being delivered from bondage and slavery, but from bondage to sin. And the promised land you're going into is not some temporal land of Cana. It's eternal life. Notice what Paul says. So when Paul says here, and as a good Pharisee, he understands this. He says, my ministry through signs and wonders. What's he saying? Guys, remember what God did in the Exodus? And then remember when you read through Isaiah and we saw in the life of Christ my ministry is as authenticated and validated by God in the very same way. Fourth and finally, Paul saying that his ministry was authentic because it was just absolutely transformative. Look at verse 19, or the, the second half of verse 19. He says, from Jerusalem to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I know you kind of have a sense of where Jerusalem is, but where is Illyricum? There it is. So here's Jerusalem down here at the bottom, and then 1,095 miles across the Mediterranean Sea, we have Illyricum, and then here's Rome. What is Paul saying? Now, you know Paul didn't catch a cruise liner all the way across. He, he kind of went up here in his missionary journeys, went back, and there did that kind of a thing. So he traveled well over 2,000 miles in his 10 years of preaching the gospel. What's he getting at? The entire Roman world or at least the eastern half of it. This whole region populated by local deities, regional gods, clans, and kingdoms of the empire had received the gospel, had been transformed. And friends, I want to tell you, if, if you don't, I, I know I'm a big fan of history, so maybe I'm preaching from my own passions here, but one of the benefits about reading history is that it fills this book out tremendously. A danger of just reading the Bible can be, you might think that the early church had it kind of easy because all of the world seemed to become Christian and we are the inheritors of that legacy. And so like Paul went to Galatia, preached the gospel, everyone got saved, church got planted, woo, revival, next, rinse and repeat. 
But if you read history, you realize these regions, it was brutal. Cannibalism as a form of worship. I mean, it's just brutal. The, the, the human rights we take for granted that we think are universal did not exist except for the gospel. And our brothers and sisters went into the then-known world preaching a crucified Savior and every culture and clan and kingdom and nation submitted to it because of the changed lives they saw and the reality that the gospel made sense of reality and offered them hope. And we live in different worlds. I get it. Back then it was local deities and regional gods and a pantheon of titans and demigods and beliefs and mysteries. And you say, well, that, of course the gospel would make sense because that's all spiritual talk. But friends, the reality is, look, our world is very different, but that's just window dressing. Underneath our iPhones and our technology and our computer screens, it's the same thing. We just have different labels for it. So for us, it's the political, sociological, psychological, theoretical beliefs, ideas, and hypothesis. But friends, whether you bow the knee at the oracle of Delphi or you bow the knee at the oracle of modern experts, you still have to contend with the truth of the gospel. And it has transformed the world. And the global church is evidence of that. Whether it's here in Southern California or Africa or Asia or Eastern Europe, cultures have been upended because of the truth of the gospel message. It was transformative. So Paul says his ministry was authentic for those four reasons, that it brought about obedience, that it was consistent, it had integrity, it was validated by God, and it was transformative of the entire world. And then finally, Paul says that, that the reason you ought to believe the credibility of what I'm bringing to you is that it carries force and it's an ongoing ministry, Paul says. Notice what he says in um, 19 to 21. So the power of, oh, by the way, kind of let's back up here. This is, a, this is not in my notes, so I'm just going to wing it. So when Paul says, I have completed the gospel of the ministry of Jesus Christ, what could he possibly be meaning by that? I mean, is it, are we to believe that Paul talked to every man, woman, and child like through this entire region? No. So why did Paul say, I was able to fulfill the gospel of Jesus Christ? Notice through this entire region, and if you look at your New Testament, you'll name, the, the names of our New Testament letters are major cities along the way what Paul had done is planted churches. All along the way, he had planted churches in all these areas. And he says, I have completed the job. Because when, I, when he says, I planted these churches, they're going to go out. They're going to make converts. They're going to make disciples. And they're going to plant churches. And on and on, this is going to go. And this is why part of our mission strategy is not just necessarily support independent missionaries. But we get behind church planters and those who are supporting the, the work of planting churches in overseas countries. Because this is the same philosophy that Paul had. And so Paul says, look, I completed the work because he planted robust churches all along the way. And then he says this. Um, end of verse 19. I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You would think then he would say, so now I'm going to take it easy. But look at verse 20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, and here he quotes from the prayer that uh, Kyle read to us, Isaiah 52, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is Isaiah talking about the survivors of captivity coming out to tell the world of the exile and deliverance they got by Yahweh's hand. And Paul says, I've done all this thing, I've reached the entire eastern part of Rome, and now I'm going to the west. Because there's more work to be done. 
Paul does not know the word retirement. Ten years, at least, that we see in Acts 15 and 20, riots, revivals, prison, shipwreck, miracles, signs, wonders, churches planted, congregations grown, conversion, discipleship, beatings, whippings, hunger, thirst. I mean, just read 2 Corinthians 4 and 11. The list goes on and on, and Paul doesn't stop. In verse 21, he says, he quotes Isaiah as warrant for him that now he needs to go beyond Rome. And eventually he gets to Spain, or that, that's his goal. And we know history, don't we? Because of Paul and because of brothers and sisters in Christ, the gospel went all throughout Europe, penetrated into Asia, got down into Africa, eventually makes its way over to the Americas, and then faithful congregations in the prairie land and crosses west and through the Catholic the missions of the Spanish missions comes up north Southern California gets the gospel but even before then missionaries from the east coast sail over to Polynesia Oceania and the gospel spreads friends it's more than just the, the the geographic impact and the sociological impact that makes the gospel so convincing it's that this ancient message still brings answers to our modern world like nothing else and that's partly what, what, what promoted Paul to keep going. Paul speaks this message with the same boldness today because the message is the same. It just looks different, and we need to conceive of it differently. But Paul makes the point that he's a priest, like the Christian, we are priests, but we are functioning in the same way that Christ, the great high priest, continues in his priestly ministry. Except Christ is not bringing, as I said, the blood of bulls and goats, but his own blood on behalf of you and I to give us forgiveness. And as Paul's ministry was validated as authentic by God through the workings of signs and wonders, the power of Christ is operative today. Over the greatest powers you and I will ever face, sin, death, the grave. In other places, Paul says, look, if Christ would take care of that, there's nothing he can't be trusted with. And the Christian message is ongoing in the way it makes sense of our world. No matter what modern questions we bring to this ancient text, we come up with powerfully clear answers, whether that's on human sexuality, gender, or me and some of the staff guys were talking about uh, artificial intelligence and the human uniqueness and consciousness and how Scripture addresses all of those questions are there as well. Now, to be clear, to be very clear, the answers are not always easy and may not be what you like. But that's the thing about truth. It's not about what's easier or what we like. It's about conforming to reality. The scripture continues to do that, which is why it continues to penetrate culture. It's obvious that Paul lived with a distinct sense of purpose and mission when he woke up every morning. And the question we have to ask is, are we gripped as well? Are we gripped by the story such that it drives us and shapes us? Now, to be clear, Paul occupied a very unique time in God's redemptive history. But friends, you are just as unique as Paul was in your own way. You have your own unique set of circumstances, your friends, your family, your situation. Can you be as gripped by the gospel truth to make a difference? And God doesn't just use apostles and prophets. He uses everyday, ordinary people like you and I. I'll conclude with this example. Uh, if you live in my neighborhood, you cannot not know about the Jesus loves you guy. I live by a Mission Viejo High School. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Jesus loves you guy? Raise your hand if you've seen Jesus loves you guy. Yes. For those of you who don't know, there's this older Indian man who wanders around rocking a Walkman and sunglasses. And the only thing you'll ever see him wear, I've never, if he was an action hero, this is what he looks like. Jesus loves you on his shirt. 
And he'll just point at his shirt, point in the sky, and yell as loud as he can to get you to look at him. You know what I'm talking about, right? And, and, and what I love about Christianity is we've got such a broad umbrella that we have room for the Jesus loves you guy. Because he can be crazy. I've seen him block traffic in the crosswalk, standing as people are in their cars, and he's going, woo! And they're just trying to get to work, you know? Well, one day at the Starbucks over here on the corner, or down at uh, uh, La Paz down there, there was a Jesus loves you guy. And so I just, I got to talk and say, hey, Jesus loves you guy. I said, tell me, I think I was with, were, you, were we together? Were we together talking to him? Yeah. Okay, that's my son's over there. So I said, I got to know your story. What's the deal? And he, well, he grew up Hindu. He says, I realized the, there was no hope in the, the pantheon of endless gods of Hinduism until I heard the gospel. And it changed my life. And, and, and he recognized as an immigrant, he can't, he can't do much. He says, I, I can at least do this. My, I made it my life's goal to tell one million people Jesus loves you. And that's what he does. That's why he walks around doing that. I don't know how far he gets, but I have heard whispers of Lake Forest sightings. You know, it's like, it's like Sasquatch, you know. It's Jesus love you guys in RSM. But the point is, whether you're Paul the Apostle or the Jesus loves you guy, if you're gripped by the story of the gospel, God can use you. We've just got to be willing for, for that to happen. I pray that it's so for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. As we, as we read and start wrapping up the book of Romans, Paul is reminded that the message and the messenger both matter. And as he looks back on your providence in his life, and he sees it everywhere, just in, in the fact that his ongoing proclamation of the gospel is in continuation with what you've always been doing in the Old Testament, that you are working powerfully through him, and that Christianity, he's so fueled with hope because he knows it's the answer for an ever-changing world. Those realities still exist today. Lord, help us to see our legacy, our continuation. We're not making Christianity up as we go. We are stewards of something that has been going on since human history has been recorded. And it is still just as powerful in changed lives. And it still has the answers for an ever-changing world. Lord, we can be tempted to circle the wagons, but that is not what you want of us. Help us to, to learn to live, to live a transformed life in obedience to Christ and bring the answers of the gospel to this world that desperately needs you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.